0: Alright, well as we continue to move forward in our survey, our journey through church history, we are kind of working our way through some of these early disciples of the apostles, sort of this, this critical um, jumping off point from the leadership of the apostles of Christ himself into sort of this next generation of leadership in the church. And, and just trying to to look at some of these writings from some of these key uh, people from the very early uh, stages of church history, just after um, the time of the apostles, and just draw, drawing out some key elements of some of their writings. Obviously, there's not a tremendous amount of, of information or writing available to us. I mean, it's not like you've got multi-volume sets of this and that by... These various writers, but what we do have, we're able to piece together some really salient things that, that really tie together the doctrine of the church, the leadership of the church, the, the emphasis of the church, and, and, and how that ties back all the way to the times of the New Testament, to the revelation of Christ himself in the Gospels, and really gives us a sense of, of mooring and, and bearing and, and direction for uh, our faithfulness in our day and time today. As the church and as God's people, this is a time uh, known as the time of the apostolic fathers. It's the larger period of the patristic period, and um, and we've talked a little bit about uh, a few different people during this time. We initially looked at Clement of Rome a few weeks ago, and the thing that we drew out from Clement's writings is he had some emphasis in his letter to the Corinthians on justification by faith alone which is obviously a cornerstone doctrine of the church, um, a, a cornerstone um, doctrine that guides the church and that roots the church in the truth. And of course, uh, Clement was um, an early uh, teacher in this, in this doctrine. Uh, he was the fourth pastor of the church in Rome. He was mentioned by the Apostle Paul very likely in Philippians chapter 4. Um, And he really emphasized or focused upon the distinction between the root of justification, which is by grace, through faith alone, in Christ alone, versus the fruit of justification, which is good works that are the manifestation of true salvation, not the cause of it. That distinction is made clearly in his writings, and we highlighted some of that, which is a core doctrine, of course, of the church. Last week we took a quick look at Polycarp of Smyrna, who was the pastor of the church in Smyrna. He was a, an, a disciple of the Apostle John. Uh, he was a friend of Ignatius who we're going to talk about a little bit today. but we looked at his um, the account of his martyrdom as just an example of the kind of passionate, courageous conviction that was demonstrated by him, but also, how he articulated, even in his statements at the time, uh, just prior to his being burned at the stake, his 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 rootedness and groundedness in doctrinal truth. He he highlighted the triune nature of God, uh, and really highlighted that that core doctrine of the Trinity of God being a triune God, three and one. And he he specifically articulated uh, the persons of the Godhead in some of his statements just prior to being burned at the stake. Before we step into today and look at some of the, the key elements of Ignatius's writing, um, I want to ask this question, and I want to get some discussion on, the, on the, the, the table here for us. This is a, sort of a, a guiding uh, f- to frame up some of our thinking as we move into this. And this is a pretty, couple of pretty broad questions. Um, the first question is this What do you think makes up a healthy church? What are the characteristics of a healthy church? Biblical preaching. Okay, what else?
1: Members demonstrating love for each other, okay, the, to each other.
0: Okay, the love of the body and and the fruitful use of the gifts and ministering to one another. Okay, what else? Okay, so so faithful uh, faithful leadership or faithfulness to the truth amongst the leaders. Faithfulness to the, to the scriptures amongst the leaders. Okay, good. What else? Anything else? Regenerate church membership. Truly saved believers? Pure church. Yeah, a pure church. Okay, good. Church discipline. Church discipline, so making sure you maintain the purity of the body. What other characteristics come to mind?
2: Evangelism, a church that has a focus on reaching the lost.
0: Okay. Okay. You're going to say something? I was
2: going to say that, but I was going to say missions oriented
0: Okay. So being outreach, missions, evangelistic in your focus. Let me ask a a different question. Uh, A related question, but uh, just sort of almost really the opposite uh, end of the spectrum. What is it that often leads to divisions in the church? Or or even splits of churches? Or schisms that break... (coughs) churches into other denominations if you want to get even more macro in your focus. I mean, what what are some things that, you said pride, okay, it's, it's good. Preferences, it's very good, which is rooted in pride, right? Pride, pride that's really not a fair answer because that really covers everything.
3: That, I mean, that's like, that's
0: right, I mean, it's like, you and what's wrong with everything? Pride. That's really it. That's really the bottom well, that's what we line.
1: Value here in America.
0: That's right. Um, but what else? What are some other, other tactical things or tangible things that might lead to churches being divided? Doctrinal disagreements. Doctrinal disagreements. Good. Okay. The way the money is spent and handled. Stewardship. Okay. Hmm? Buildings, okay, good, or just the, the, just the, the the building of empire, really. I mean, it's like you know the the yeah. what's that?
2: I would say lack of biblical teaching because if they don't know the truth, then they're just going on
0: their feelings. Okay, so watering down the emphasis on gospel truth. Good. Okay, so keep all of that in mind. Okay, this is not just with talking about or thinking about Ignatius, but just thinking about the um, the the sort of the development of the church as it is sort of recorded for us in history. And and what we see and know today in our own church experience, but also what we observe in what you might call other church environments or, or other denominations or other sort of associations of professing believers. Keep all of that in mind as as we as we move forward. Now I just Phil mentioned pride, and I want to read James 4, 1 through 3, because it really does, in one sense, get at the heart of of all of this regarding divisions. Just to remind us, James says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. When it comes right down to it, we can look back through the annals of time and church history and we can look at various schisms that took place or we can look at what might be the seeds of, of instruction that led to certain erroneous teachings about the development of church hierarchy and all those kinds of things and we can we can sort of have this this, um, detached sort of clinical evaluation of what caused these things to happen. But the fact of the matter is, is that we must always recognize and be on guard for our own individual pride and preferences. You guys already mentioned that. Our, Our desire for what we want and what we might be willing to do or say, or pursue to get what we want. And the misplacement of the things that we want, that are driven by our own passions, as James says, that we would go so far as to murder, commit murder. Or, if you want to use that as more of a metaphor, to destroy a a fundamental relationship. that's That's what's behind all of this. We must always be on guard against our own passion for our own preferences and our own desires and the fulfillment of them, especially in the life of the body of Christ. And insofar as that has been overlooked, um, you have divisions, you have quarrels, you have fights that lead to bigger fights and bigger quarrels, that lead to councils and excommunications and divisions and the setting up of structures and infrastructure and all this kind of thing to protect power bases and all these kinds of things that we will we'll see, continue to see as we study history. But I think it's important for us to maintain this, this appropriate focus on our own individual contribution to anything related to divisions in the church. It's, it's our own pride. It's, we want what we want. And we, were, we, will, we might be willing to go to extreme measures to get what we want. We can be blinded by our pride and we can be blinded by our own sin. so in looking at this particular principle and thinking about what we've been talking about all this time, how when you go back and you look in Acts and you look at the missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul and we, we emphasized how he went to these various churches, and it wasn't his practice, although there were certain times where he, did, he was not able to stay long or he would have to pass through or he might be sort of uh, run out of town very quickly, but in most instances, his intention was to go and to bring the gospel of Christ to that town, to that community, to that city, but also to set up and disciple and shepherd leaders who could then carry the ministry forward and pass the gospel on to the next generation. Very much a focus on on making sure that the church was not about him and his ministry every time he came through, but was about the ongoing work of Christ through his people. And so we see him sort of emphasizing this point, for example, in Acts chapter 20 when he addresses the Ephesian elders and he's telling them to pay careful attention to themselves and to all the flock and he's guarding them against the fact that that we might be led astray by wolves that might come in among us. We see this in 2 Timothy, his encouragement to Timothy to be strengthened in the grace that is in Jesus Christ. And what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. This emphasis on passing on truth to faithful men who will then pass it on as well. So when you start looking at these early church fathers... The emphasis has to be upon, still, truth, not on some progressive understanding of what we're supposed to do next. And what has happened over history is authority has been invested in men and what they've said as opposed to in the very word of God and what it teaches regarding doctrine and truth and the practice and functioning of the church. When you get to Ignatius, you have some things introduced by Ignatius that are seized upon in subsequent years of history as the justification for, what many, for many aspects of, for example, the Roman Catholic Church. And yet, it's not, it's not an emphasis on gospel truth. It's an emphasis on taking the writings of a man who was writing in a particular time, in a particular context... And elevating them almost to the point of sacrosanct scripture. And using them as authority. Above in many cases. Above in many cases, for sure. So that's that's what we're kind of gonna kind of try to tease out a little bit today. Ignatius of Antioch, uh, he was probably born sometime between 30 and 35 A.D. He became the pastor of the church in Antioch of Syria, and as you recall. Antioch of Syria became this, this hub city. After Jerusalem, Antioch becomes this sort of this hub city. It was the home base of the Apostle Paul, for example, in his missionary journeys. It was the sending church uh, on Paul's missionary journeys, and it was a church with a great number, particularly of Gentile believers. So it became a very important um, city in, in the work of Christ in the, in the ministry of the gospel uh, very early on in the church's history. And so, uh, Ignatius was uh, the pastor of this church. Um, He was a disciple as well, like Polycarp, of John the Apostle, Um, and he was a good friend of Polycarp of Smyrna, who we talked a little bit about last week. Ignatius wrote about seven letters that we know of um, to various churches, Um, and he wrote these letters while he was en route being taken to Rome for his execution. So, What we have of Ignatius, this contemporary of Polycarp, this disciple of the Apostle John, pastor of the church in Antioch during this period of time, we have in his letters that he wrote while he was en route to be martyred, en route to Rome. Uh, From Smyrna, he made a stop. From Antioch, he made a few stops through Asia Minor, kind of similar to the Apostle Paul traversing through that part of the world. Um, in his early missionary journeys. And so in Smyrna, he wrote several letters. He wrote a, a letter to the church in Magnesia, which is in Greece in the time. So there was believers there in, in Greece from, in, in this area of Magnesia. He wrote a letter to the church in Tralles, which is an Asia, a, a, a area of Asia Minor. He wrote a letter to the church in Ephesus, and he wrote a letter to the church in Rome while he was stopping off in Smyrna. Then he went on and, and was taken to Troas, and while he was in Troas, he wrote a letter to the church, back to the church in Smyrna. He also wrote a letter to Polycarp, his friend and the pastor of the church in Smyrna, and he also wrote a letter to the church in Philadelphia. Now, we, what we know is that he was martyred in Rome sometime between 98 and 117 AD. Church tradition places that time around 107 Let me read to you an excerpt from an article about this time. While the Emperor Trajan was on a visit to Asia Minor, he arrested Ignatius. When the bishop confessed his faith in Christ, the emperor sent him in chains to Rome to die. The public spectacles, these festivals in Rome, were about to close when Ignatius arrived. He was hustled to the arena at once and thrown to two fierce lions who immediately devoured him. According to traditions, he died on this day, October 17, 107 A.D. At no time did he try to escape his miserable death. On the contrary, while bound for Rome under armed guard, he wrote a letter to the church in the imperial capital in Rome, insisting that no one interfere with his true sacrifice. Quite a bit of his uh, content in the letter to the Romans was him instructing them not to interfere. There was... A word getting out that there was going to be the, you know, this effort to try to save him from this, this certain death, this certain execution, and he instructed them not to do that. Here it is in Ignatius' own words, given in a letter that he wrote to Smyrna while on his death march. Nearness to the sword is nearness to God. To be among the wild beasts is to be in the arms of God. Only let it be in the name of Jesus Christ. I endure all things that I may suffer together with Him, since He who became perfect man strengthens me. It was merely the outworking of the faith He had preached for many years. He said, We have not only to be called Christians, but to be Christians. To die for Christ, even if it meant becoming a sport to bloodthirsty spectators, was to inherit eternal glory. So that's just some accounting of some of his writings regarding this, this journey to Rome and this imminent execution that was to take place, this martyrdom that was to take place under the Emperor Trajan. Now, some of the things that we, we find, we discover from his writings to these churches um, that are, I think, of significance for us is uh, one of the things is that he was an early witness to um, the observance of the Lord's Day uh, as, a, as a Christian uh, practice of worship, as opposed to the Jewish Sabbath, as an example. He was, he was an early witness to the Lord's Day. In his letter to the Magnesians, he says this, If then those who walk in the ancient practices attain to newness of hope, no longer observing the Sabbath, but fashioning their lives after the Lord's Day, on which our life also arose in Him, that we may be found disciples of Jesus Christ, our only teacher. So early on, you have this testimony of Ignatius affirming the practice of Christian worship on Sunday as opposed to on Saturday. Sunday being the day of Christ's resurrection and him equating our being raised to newness of life in Christ. It's only fitting that we find our place of corporate worship on the Lord's day. Now he also... Spoke of the Catholic Church. He was an early. And several early church fathers spoke of the Catholic Church, but Ignatius was uh, more prolific early on in this regard. But this term "Catholic" was not Catholic in its formal sense. Catholic is a term for universal church. Small C, Small c correct. It meant the church, the, the the unity of the body of Christ worldwide. Being in Christ, that's who the church is. The church is not just comprised of this local body of believers in Smyrna or in Rome or in Antioch or wherever. But there is a unity of believers in Christ. And so he used this term in his writings, the Catholic Church. Now what might you think happens in reading into his writings if you are inclined toward supporting what has become the Catholic Church? Other than, there you have it, right? Early on was the Catholic Church, as we know it now. This, this emphasis to go back in time and to identify with the earliest writings and the earliest leaders as confirmation of what we think should be the case for us now is what happened, particularly with Ignatius, Others, others after him as well, but Ignatius was certainly early on. So, he wrote of the Catholic Church, but he was referring to the church universal. He was saying that this applies to every believer. He also, though, promoted a single bishop form of church government. So, he, was, he articulated very discreetly a form of church government that was organized around a a a lead or head pastor, if you will, a lead bishop. Um, This was something that um, in in his day and time was a focus of his upon the unity of the body of Christ and the importance of sound doctrine in the church. And so he promoted this, this form of church government. Here's what he says in his letter to the church in Smyrna. He says, See that you all follow the bishop, even as Jesus Christ does the Father, and the presbytery as you would the apostles, and reverence the deacons as being the institution of God. Let no man do anything connected with the church without the bishop. Let that be deemed a proper Eucharist, which is administered either by the bishop or by one to whom he has entrusted it. Wherever the bishop shall appear, there, let the multitude also be, even as wherever Jesus Christ is, there is the Catholic Church. Now, you read something like that what, what what is the what is the tendency? We talked about this last week when we highlighted peter's confession of Christ and jesus' statement of on this rock, I will build my church, and how reading into the text a meaning that we bring to the text uh, can lead to all manner of heresy or misapplication or appropriation of truth. So, in the example we talked about last week in this confession of Christ, was Jesus saying that you are Peter and thereby I am anointing you the first pope and you are Peter the first pope and so upon you, Peter... I'm going to build my church and you, Peter, is the first pope, I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whether you loose on earth shall be loose. I mean, is that what is being spoken of there? Or as we talked about, is it the confession? You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Well, the same thing can happen in these writings of Ignatius. Is there? Is there let me ask you a question about this. Is there anything inherently wrong... In a church structure where you have a lead pastor and say elders who are, you know, alongside that lead pastor, is there anything inherently unbiblical or wrong with that form of government? Would anybody, would anybody disagree with that? he's quiet. I'm not sure what <laughs> to say. Do you think we have we have Shane in the room? Okay, let's go ahead and get. Potentially controversial. Yeah. So we have. So let's just take our church for example. So we have Shane, who is kind of our teaching pastor, our, our lead pastor, if you will. How do you think we function as a church? Anybody, anybody ever thought about this or considered this or talked to anybody about this? By the way, we don't have to keep talking about Shane in third person if we want to ask him. You know, he's right there. We. But yeah, go ahead. He's got to keep the beard. I know, right? um, now, I guess I was
3: just thinking through some of my own experience. I did have a question, uh, and then a couple things. But, so you're saying at the time, this is Ignatius we're talking about, right? So at the time, uh, so there were um, ruling bodies. Is this on a geographic basis or on a, well, I mean, is it? Is it yes. Or we're talking like this may cover a huge swath
0: of yeah so good good question. Early on, obviously, there was churches there might just be one church in a city, so if you're wondering if there was a bishop of a region or a city, well, that could be one and the same. right? I mean, you might not have multiple in other words, the organization of the church as a as an institution, the institutional organization of it was not you know like it is anything like it is today or like it, but it ultimately did become it did turn into a more formal hierarchical structure where you had a, a bishop who oversaw a region, a city, and it might even be expanded beyond just a city. Well,
3: I've heard it explained that. For, for that at the time to, if someone did renounce the faith, but then wanted to come back into the fold later on, and, you know, to examine and see if that person was a real, a true believer. I guess I was thinking about that, but then I guess at the same time you could do that on the local level just
0: as well. Yeah, I mean, so so, so think about the think about the the development of of um, the development of um. Doctrine and practice, and the passing on of truth in the church. Um, we've talked about this: how you have these references, even in these early early writers, of New Testament writings. But you at this time you still didn't have the full. You, you didn't have like the the assembly of the New Testament, for example, in everybody you know, in, in every local church. So you had the teaching of the apostles and these letters that were circular letters that would that would circulate certainly and that were seen as authoritative and were recognized as scripture but in terms of the nature of communication and passing on that information it's not like it was instantaneous that this was happening okay so there's to me there's some pragmatic rationale for trying to do things to ensure consistency of instruction in, in the truth, and in, in doctrine. So, the, so in other words, I'm asking the question not so much to say, so, so if we think about this only in terms of our understanding of, for example, Roman Catholicism and the Pope being the vicar of Christ, and you've got this real sort of hierarchical understanding and this real authority of, Uh, sort of on equal par or even above Scripture at different times, I'm I'm asking you to to distinguish between that and and possibly what Ignatius might be writing about in this day and time, and to distinguish between what we do to read into things, or can do to read into things, versus to just understand them in their context. We do this with the Scriptures, but we can also do it with historical writings. You you say something, Jane.
2: So a lot of these places, you know, pastors were being brought up, but still needed a mentor or someone to look to. So, what eventually became a rigid hierarchy in the Catholic Church really started out, it seems, like a more informal uh, relationship, you know, between an influential uh, local pastor over several churches, and and then eventually this idea of a bishopric, where a bishop was over, as uh, Isaac was those
0: are just the social dynamics that, that contributed to that uh, sort of interconnectedness of those churches? Our tendency is to elevate the thing, whether it's a person or it's some sort of list of rules. Our, our, our tendency is toward various shades of legalism, no matter what it is. That's, that's our tendency. So you can only... It, it, I don't think it's too difficult for us to envision how over time, and over a relatively brief period of time, you could enshrine what Ignatius is saying here as God's way of doing church. And it gives us rules to follow. It gives us, if you're a part of the power structure, rules to enforce, ways to manage. And in some senses, that's a good thing. That can be a good thing. I mean, to be able to, to have order, good order and clarity and consistency of, of instruction and training and people who are well-trained in the scriptures. The issue is not, is this, like I said in the original question, is this a, a right biblical form of government or not? It's how, how, how does it equate with actual revealed truth or not? And the people who are in positions of leadership or influence Whatever you call them, what is, the, what is the character of those people? What is the fruit of those people's lives? Those are the kinds of questions that the body of Christ has to be asking one another. If we get hung up on comparing this form of government to that form of government to this you know, hierarchical way of doing things, and that's equivalent to God's word, you're off track no matter what. So the fact of the matter is, is that in the life of the church, I, think of, think about your own experience. You may have you may have people who who see themselves equal, but you may have people in that group who have decision making responsibilities, and there might be one who's more influential than others because of their grasp of the scriptures or their clarity of thinking or their particular knowledge in a particular area that's helpful, whatever it might be. Here's where the challenge comes in. If someone who has a position of influence or if those around that person who also have responsibilities for leadership become self-centered, become prideful, going back to James, want what they want. I, I don't care what the structure is. I don't care what you call the people. It, it doesn't matter. The point is, is it always comes back to the pride of men and us having quarrels and fights and divisions among us because we want what we want and we're willing to do almost anything to get it. But if there's humility and an intense focus on what is true and clear from God's word and there's a faithfulness to that and there's a willful submission to the, the gifts of, in the body, then you're going to have people who will rise to positions of influence at different points in time. You might have a certain structure in place that you adopt to say this is how we best see the church functioning in our environment or in our context or in our community or whatever. And it doesn't have to be anything other than just trying to be faithful to what God's called them to or called a church to.
2: and the you know, particular gifts those men are to be selected out and considered worthy of double honor so we have sort of that structure that you were talking about where we have some some men who are dedicated in full time service to the church and some men who are not but it's interesting in that first Timothy passage after he gives that in verse 17-18 he turns around right in 19 and begins talking about the need for discipline among the elders that there's you know, even with that structure, there's no one who's above accountability. There's no one who's above scrutiny. There's no one who can't be uh, called out if they veer into, like what you're saying, pride or self-centeredness or domineering spirit or whatever it might be. So there's always equality even within that that structure that First Timothy 5, 17 lays out. Yep,
0: yeah. And in fact, I, I just... The, think about the, the, you know, we talked about, someone made the comment, uh, was it you guys buildings or something being a source of stewardship and all this sort of stuff? So think about our church, and we're in the midst of this building, you know, campaign, this effort to to not meet in a school art room for Sunday school, you know, for example. I mean, that's our objective, is to have, is to build... It's so inspiring here, huh? It's so inspiring. It is. Yes, well, I know. I know you look around, and you, especially during the school year when all the artwork's up. Um so, so there's definitely opportunity for serious, for us to step on serious minds in this area, and there's there's minefields that can get laid for us in this in this effort for sure. Yep.
3: Yeah. I have just a few questions. Um, so, well, number one, though, this is awesome because Julie and I were talking about the same thing on the way to church this morning. God's kindness in answering questions, but with um, with uh, is this is this where denominations come from?
0: Yeah, I've got something I'm going to read to you from uh, from Shelley's book, In Church History, that's, that kind of speaks to that.
3: That, and then, um, you know, we have family that had um, affected from the faith and joined the Catholic Church. And, um, you know, just, so this just hits really close to home, but um, just curious, how do we answer, as we get to that, um, the accusation that, you know, well, we're... Evangelicals, look at all your denominations. You have a church in every corner, you know, um, and all these different denominations. And us Catholics, we're the united. Our word Catholic means united church, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, I didn't know how deep you wanted to dig into all that, but those are just some things that I've I've heard thrown around. And
0: uh, well, I mean, I, I I think that the the Catholic Church just as a point of fact in history has had no shortage of problems and schisms and you know it's a fallacy that they yes do. I mean that's that's you know um, and and the idea that there's I mean t- it's, this, this to me is the same sort of the same question the same sort of argument for denying the faith because there's evil in the world you know I mean it's it's to recognize that there are fallible people and have been throughout time of memorial, and memorial, and that we're all seeing through a mirror dimly. And so you've had to, to, to determine why this denomination started versus that denomination. I mean, it would probably be helpful to go back and look at the history there and get some factual information. But at the root of it all, it often goes back to this James passage and it goes back to people preferring one thing over another and digging their heels in and, and that kind of thing. And that's not, a, that's not a, a, a a statement against the truth of Scripture. That's a confirmation of the fallibleness of man. That's all that is. So, yes? You
1: know, um, if you look at how things work politically, Right? The, the people who are always trying to garner political power are always trying to herd people into groups. And they want them in groups because they're easier to manage that way. And if, if you look at what the Roman Catholic system did, it mirrored government, and now counties are actually, you know, uh, parishes, and everything's organized, and it's all... And if you look at Europe, it's, it, you know, it's the, the state church. And even in a place like Sweden, where I go buried my mother's cousin in a graveyard that's as old as Christianity in in Sweden. Uh, And they had a reformation, now their state church is Lutheranism. And it's all arranged by, you know, it's it's a state church and everything. You have to understand that, you know, the ruler of this world is Satan. So, and friendliness with the world is enmity with Christ. And so, the, you know, Satan, I think, decided he was going to, you know, organize the church into a group so that they'd be easily led away from the truth. But the nature of the true church is insurgent. So it, it sort of needs a, you know, a, a different flavor than to be, you know, that organized, you know, at the state level on down.
0: That's just dangerous. The other thing, too, to recognize is that if if history teaches us anything, it's that that the church, and when I say the church, I mean the the true elect of God, right, Um, throughout history has gone through these different swings back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. Um, And like I said, I mean, that's why I I'm, I'm referenced the James passage at the beginning and, and made that emphasis. It's easily, it, it, we're easily distracted by all of the circumstances around these rifts rather than looking at what's at the heart of these rifts. And it, we're also prone to kind of um, evaluate and analyze these kinds of things from some kind of distance as though we're immune to that kind of thing. So that's why I draw us back to you know, the passage in James that we all have to be on guard against our own tendency to elevate our preferences and to fight for them. That's inspired scripture. Why is it there other than to say, be cautioned and be warned? And when you think about the, the flow of church history, you think about this introduction of this kind of church governance, which we're going to talk about this in, in the next few weeks about the, the, the heresies that came on the scene, and Gnosticism was a big one, and Ignatius was having to deal with Gnosticism in a, in a very clear kind of way. So, I mean, there's just different things that were going on that would warrant a certain kind of um, consistency of, of teaching and instruction in the truth and rooting and grounding the people of God in what is true, so that they're not tossed to and fro and led astray by every wind of doctrine and led into into error. So um, so all that has to be kind of thought about as well. But at the core of, of all of these different quarrels and fights and schisms is man's desire for what he wants and what he's willing to do to get it. You are going to say something? I
2: just, I mean, I kind of, in looking at denominations, I think it's Corinthians where... They were saying, well, we follow Paul, and we follow Apollos, and really, I mean, a lot of denominations are exactly that. The Lutherans follow Luther, the Methodists follow Wesley, like, it's where they've elevated one particular man's teaching, and kind of created a denomination around that, and um, it really, I mean, to me, it seems like it kind of just goes back to that heart of man that you're talking about, of we want to follow a man instead of just
0: the word. Yeah. Listen to this, uh, this kind of this excerpt from Shelley's book. I think it's really helpful to kind of think about it, and he breaks it down. Uh, we're going to have to close after this, but he breaks it down into into some ways for us to think about this. He says, Paul made sure that the churches planted in the path of his missionary journeys had pastoral leaders to care for the spiritual needs of believers in a given place. These local leaders were of two sorts. One group was called elders or presbyters from the Greek word for elders. The same men were also known as bishops, or overseers, or pastors, or shepherds. The other group of leaders was called deacons. The duties of these leaders varied from place to place, but generally speaking, the presbyters taught new converts, led in public worship, and maintained discipline. The deacons assisted the presbyters in every way except perhaps presiding at the Lord's Supper. Thus, the apostolic age knew both a traveling group of spirit-empowered leaders and a resident group caring for the needs of established congregations. This general picture, however, soon changed. After the turn of the century, Ignatius, the pastor of the church in Antioch, wrote a series of letters. In these, he speaks habitually of a single bishop or pastor in each church, a body of presbyters, and a company of deacons. God's grace and the Spirit's power, he teaches, flow to the flock through this united ministry. No one seems to know just how the single pastor assisted by the elders and deacons became the widespread pattern within the churches, but we we know it did. Several factors probably influenced the trend. Apparently, one of the presbyters emerged to correspond with other churches, to handle the funds for the poor, to preach the true faith in the conflicts with heretical teachers, and to administer the Lord's Supper. It took some years before Ignatius' threefold ministry was adopted everywhere. We know, for example, that Alexandria had no single bishop until about A.D. 180. And when the churches accepted the pattern, not all administered affairs in the same way. Numerous small churches in Asia Minor and Africa had their own bishops. But elsewhere, for example in Gaul, the bishop of a large town would supervise congregations in surrounding areas by assigning presbyters to them. By the late second century, however, the unchallenged leader in church affairs was the bishop. His hands were gently strengthened by the conflict with the Gnostics, who appeared to a succession of teachers traced back to the apostles. This, this, this effort to trace uh, leadership back to the apostles was a big uh, emphasis during this time. Uh, Jesus so the Gnostics argued had entrusted a secret wisdom to certain teachers before he ascended. These teachers in turn passed on this spirit this special truth to other teachers and they in turn to others. so the Gnostic teachers rather than the Catholic churches had the true philosophy. Catholic Christians countered this argument by stressing the public teaching of the churches, the rule of faith, and the bishops in the churches established by the apostles. This argument was outlined first by Hegesippus, a historian who traveled from Palestine to Rome in the mid-2nd century. He associated with numerous bishops along the way and heard the same teaching from all. Catholic or Orthodox teaching was public, available to anyone. In every succession and city, he said, what the law and the prophets and the Lord preached is faithfully followed. To support his point, he drew drew up succession lists of bishops going back to the Apostles, at least for Corinth and Rome. Later in the century, Irenaeus in Gaul and Tertullian in North Africa followed in this anti Gnostic path mapped out by Hegesippius. They pointed to the succession of bishops in the Catholic churches stemming from the Apostles and argued that this guaranteed the unbroken tradition of the Apostles' doctrine within the Catholic churches. Gnostics were wrong. Catholics were right. These changes in the structure and functioning of the church, especially the role of bishops, raise crucial and controversial questions. Christians of nearly every every denomination admit that these changes took place. The question is, what do the changes mean, and what authority, if any, do they have for the church of later times, especially our own? Three quite different answers to this question are possible. Number one. Some Christians argue that the men who guided the destiny of the early church willfully and sinfully departed from the divinely authorized pattern so that the changes they made should be repudiated and reversed. This is the assumption of most attempts to, quote, restore primitive Christianity, end quote. We sometimes call them back to the Bible movements. It is the common characteristic of most reforming movements In the history of the church, such movements always face the troublesome task of deciding how much of what the apostolic church did was intended to be part of the permanent pattern that churches of all ages should follow. If, for example, we accept the office of elder as a norm for our times, shall we also insist that women remain silent in the church, as an example? Second option, other Christians contend that the church and its leaders were exercising the liberty they had in the absence of any divinely authorized pattern. The government they developed may have served a good purpose in their time, but it is open to change to meet the needs of later generations, including our own. This position, usually held by those impressed within, with the church, as a social institution immersed in the stream of historical development. It is the position of the progressives who want the church to adapt to the times. Such Christians suffer the disadvantage of being unable to identify any faith or pattern of church government that has the seal of God's approval. In its extremes, it is Christianity without ultimates and absolutes. Everything is up for grabs. Third option. Still other Christians argue that the Holy Spirit so dwelt in the church and guided its decisions that the developments of the early centuries in doctrine and church structure were the work of not men, but of God. They are, therefore, permanently binding for the church. This third answer, advanced by most Catholic Christians, makes much of what is spoken... Makes, makes much of what its spokesman called the witness of history. But if the changes made in the 2nd, 3rd, and 4th centuries are attributed to the Holy Spirit, why not the 18th, 19th, and 20th? Why must we stop with the so-called Catholic centuries? So you can see that as you look at this, you're, you're left with a few variations of these three options. And I would just say, listen... There are many, many ways, or there are a number of ways to um, formalize in language or vernacular or in practice that are fruitful and efficient for any organization, the church included. What is critically important for any church is that it organizes primarily around the truth of Scripture, and it doesn't become beholden to something other than that. So like Shane mentioned, the instruction around plurality of elders and then those who are to be uh, given double honor for the time and work that they put in and, and all the things that we have regarding church governance that we should follow. And then coming back to this principle of the truth of scripture and the integrity and character and faithfulness of those responsible for leadership and influence. That's, that's the gover- governing principle for us in the, in the church and the body of Christ. Any final thoughts or questions? I'm sorry I had to read that long section for you, but I didn't want to try to summarize that. I thought it was too so good. Just
3: real quick, what based on what, Shane was saying, what you're saying, that maybe the need for that hierarchical structure has come and gone now that we have the scriptures fully written on, that we can read as a local body, setting together, be led by a local body of believers. We, we don't have the need necessarily for the geographical oversight
0: well, I wouldn't even make the argument that what Ignatius advocated was the, necessarily the right thing for the time. That's just what happened. It's just it's just a fact of history. You see you see the difference. It's it's a recognizing of a fact of history. That's how in his judgment and his uh, you know, his leadership and what he saw was the best way to organize, but it wasn't necessarily I mean, I, in, in, enshrining it as, as something that was the right thing even for that time, I think, is mistaken. You can look at the times and, and understand that there could be reasons for it that might make sense. And, and, you know, if I was in that situation, would I do it that way? I, I might. You know, I mean, you could, you could make those kinds of arguments or, or kind of come to those kinds of conclusions. But mistaking facts of history with pronouncements of what is to be enshrined for time immemorial... Is a mistake, and that's why we have to keep coming back to what is a true understanding of God's word. Let's not go beyond it. Let's make sure we're faithful to it, and let's not mistake the 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 enterprise for the body of believers who make up that that organization, and that would include those who have responsibility for leadership and stewarding and shepherding the flock. It's about faithfulness to the Lord, and faithfulness in ministry, and faithfulness to the truth, individually and collectively. That's what it comes down to. And being accountable to one another in that process. Being accountable, humble, faithful. All right, let's pray. We'll be